Hello everyone, welcome back to another episode of M's Drive-In, where we bring you into the exciting world of cinema, with behind-the-scenes facts and everything you need to know about some of the best artists in the business. I'm your host, Emily, and today's episode is all about the different dynamics shown in the works of directors George Cougar and George Stevens. So I hope you all enjoy, and let's get right to it. First up is George Cougar. According to the article, George Cougar, Lust Being Witty and Stylish Isn't Enough by Bill Davidson, Cougar states, If there is such a thing as a cougar style, I guess it arises out of two principal factors, my own personalized perception of the world and my ability to deal professionally with actors. My credo is that anyone who looks at something special in a very original way can make you see that way forever, and that is my goal in whatever I attempt. I think this quote explains his directing style perfectly, because Cougar was the type of director that believed heavily in collaboration. He quotes in the article that he considers the worst thing for a director to do is quote-unquote kiss an actor's butt. He was the type of director that believed in knowing his actors and understanding the quirks of their personalities, and he was also very adamant about paying attention to an actor's performance, which meant staying present and in the moment with the actors. With that being said, Cougar was primarily known as a quote-unquote woman's director. When the writer of the article, Bill Davidson, asks, do you resent being habitually referred to as a woman's director? Cougar replies, of course. Why don't they ever remember that I directed Jimmy Stewart and Ronald Coleman to Oscars in The Philadelphia Story and A Double Life? What about my pictures with Cary Grant, Spencer Tracy, Bill Holden, James Mason? There's no difference in directing a good actor of any sex. The only problem with women is that the stories generally are more complex and sensitive. You don't simply have two men shooting at one another. This quote is incredibly true because if you look at Cougar's work, he directed the first version of A Little Woman, the second version of A Star is Born, he directed a movie like Gaslight, which we're going to talk about today, and those three are primarily known as complex and sensitive stories with women at the forefront. Gaslight was released in 1944. This movie was written by John Van Drenten, Walter Reach, and John L. Balderstone, and was directed by George Cougar. This movie is about a young woman named Paula Alquist, who is played by Ingrid Bergman. She moves back into her aunt's house in London years after her aunt was murdered with her new husband, Gregory Anton, who is played by Charles Boyer. Once they move into the house, strange things begin to happen as Gregory accuses Paula of going insane. The themes of this movie are manipulation, anxiety, irrationality, and insanity, along with an overall picture of mental and emotional abuse, because after all, this movie is called Gaslight, and Gaslight means all of the things that I had just mentioned. Manipulation comes in the form of Gregory's character. He forms this idea and presents this theory to Paula that she is forgetful. For example, she forgets where she put a ring before she goes out to the theater with Gregory. But Paula herself is convinced she has not forgotten anything. With that being said, she begins to constantly second-guess her morals, which ends up contradicting Bergman's normality of playing a strong, independent female figure. Ingrid was known for playing these very strong, independent figures, and this was a very tough role for her to take because this woman that she's playing is the complete opposite of what 
Bergman herself was known for. And I think the challenge of channeling a woman who was so fragile and so crumpled gave her a new purpose as an actress. The character of Gregory comes across as very cunning in his approach to Paula's insanity. He constantly tricks her into believing she needs to quote-unquote stay home alone because she can't be trusted going out into public. And this causes a lot of anxiety centered around Paula's resolve. As an audience member, we see her resolve begin to break. And Cougar does an excellent job of enforcing this by creating an edgy atmosphere to capture the downward spiral of insecurity that Paula faces. Paula's insecurity in this film is shown in a very interesting way, because as an audience we see the side of her where she so badly wants to believe that what she thinks is right and what she feels is real as far as her going against everything that Gregory is saying and what he is putting in place, because Gregory is really in the wrong. He is the one really making her believe that these things are happening that aren't really happening, and Paula so badly wants to look within herself and believe in herself and believe in her own words and her own well-being. But I think because of the time that this movie came out, it was all about what a woman relying on a man looks like. Therefore, we see Paula struggling to follow her gut. This eventually leads to a large case of irrationality. Paula asks the maids in the house if they see what she sees, such as the light growing dimmer or brighter, whether they notice her losing objects, or whether they notice any of the other weird things that go on in the film. And the maids are constantly on Gregory's side and continue to reinforce the idea that Paula is losing her mind and doesn't know what she's doing and doesn't know what she's talking about. For example, there is a scene where a painting on the wall is missing. Gregory asks Paula where she put the painting, and Paula has no recollection of ever taking the painting down. But she ends up finding the painting behind a piece of furniture, which reinforces the idea of Gregory manipulating her, saying that Paula knew what she was doing the whole time when Paula didn't know anything at all. As an audience, we begin to see this clear makeup of mental and emotional abuse. Paula tries to convince Gregory that she isn't going insane, as Gregory ends up throwing all of the flaws that he made up right in front of her face. And therefore, we get this projection of false ideas. Paula is to believe her own hysterics because she has no other person in her space that acknowledges the quote-unquote true facts of what is really happening. From there, we see Brian Cameron, played by Joseph Cotton, who is a detective. He comes in and basically disapproves Gregory's claims of hysterics and insanity. So the movie ends with Gregory not getting what he wants because... Brian was there as the mediator to say that what everything that Paula was feeling was true. With that being said, there are a couple pros and cons to the film ending itself. The pros are that Paula stands up for herself. She puts herself in a position where she lets Gregory know that her thoughts and morals are her own, and nobody can take that away from her or make her feel otherwise. The cons is that Paula is continued to be seen as this fragile woman who needs another male presence to let her know that, quote-unquote, everything is going to be okay. She couldn't stand on her own as an independent woman. She had to have another man come in and support her theory. She wasn't able just to support her ideas or her morals or her theories about what was going on on her own or by herself. Which makes this film a very interesting character study as far as 
relationships as far as what we go through when we are in a position where there is an unhealthy, abusive, codependent kind of track record of how we see this type of relationship go down. Next up is The Actress. This movie was released in 1953 and was written by the actress Ruth Gordon and directed by George Cougar. This movie is actually about the true story of Gordon's journey to becoming an actress. Ruth Gordon is played by Jean Simmons and she has a dream of being on the stage. Her mother Annie is played by Teresa Wright and is supportive of her daughter's dreams while her father Clinton, who is played by Spencer Tracy, expects her to go to school and get a formal education. The themes of this movie are responsibilities, family, passions, and forward thinking. Many of the responsibilities in this film are shown through old-fashioned thinking versus forward thinking. Ruth is seen as a very forward thinker in this film. She thinks about how being an actress will help benefit her family in the future, mainly by getting her family out of poverty. Her father Clinton has this very gruff personality and feels that Ruth should stay home and get a quote-unquote formal education. He feels she should learn how to teach and learn how to sew and basically do what women are expected to do during that time period. He doesn't want her to waste her time dreaming of things that he knows might not happen for her or the rest of the family, and he expects her to earn her keep in more realistic ways. With that being said, Ruth goes out of her way to challenge those gender norms. She doesn't want to be another person in the kitchen or another person teaching at a school she doesn't want to fit the normality of a woman being in the home. She has bigger dreams, she has bigger plans, and she wants to go out and pursue whatever it is she wants to pursue without feeling held back. This type of energy that the character of Ruth Gordon shows shows the personality of who Ruth Gordon really was in real life. Since Gordon herself wrote the script, She's essentially writing about her own experiences. And since it's from her perspective, Jean Simmons was able to bring a large level of sensitivity to the role. Another really huge aspect of gender normality in this film is that Ruth is expected to be romantically linked to Fred Whitmarsh, who is played by Anthony Perkins. Her mother Annie has dreams of her daughter marrying and being in a stable relationship, but Ruth doesn't really see herself in that position. She has bigger aspirations and doesn't see herself settling down anytime soon. The passionate scenes in this film are represented with a lot of turbulence. Ruth is in a position where she doesn't want to disappoint her parents, but wants to become something more than she is expected to be. So she is forced to come head to head with both of her parents, but with her father in particular, there is a disconnect. Clinton does represent the very old-fashioned way of thinking of what a woman is expected to do in the home, like I had mentioned earlier. And because of that, we see them getting into arguments where it's very obvious that Clinton doesn't know how to let go of some control. He doesn't know how to put his daughter in a position or a place where she is able to be independent and think for herself. And we see that Ruth is very capable of thinking for herself by the way that she is able to stand up to her father. The character development in this film is clearly centered around the family dynamic. 
Ruth gradually learns to stand up to her father, and Clinton in return realizes how passionate his daughter is about pursuing her dreams and begins to realize that he needs to do whatever he can in his power to at least try to ease the burden and help Ruth get to where she wants to go. The ending of this film shows Ruth ready to go to New York to pursue her dreams. Clinton promises her that he will get her the money, but ends up being unable to because of his job restrictions. The crucial part of his character development is shown at the end of this film. He says that she could sell his most prized possession, which is a telescope, to get the money that she needs to go to New York, which is one of the greatest lessons of the film. Because you're able to see Annie and Clinton learn the importance of letting go and being able to compromise with their child. We see the family go off together to catch the train so Ruth can go to New York. And it shows that Annie and Clinton are more than capable of learning how to make certain sacrifices and compromises for their daughter. I think what's really great about this film is that Ruth Gordon is primarily known for playing a lot of comedic characters. And to see her write a story about her own experiences that is strictly based on her life and her hardships and her dynamics with her parents, it was very interesting to be able to see her own perspective because her story is a lot more serious than what she portrays on screen. And I think that that is a great example of being able to separate your personal life and your professional life. We get a glimpse of who actors are when they're on the screen, but we don't really know what they go through behind the scenes. And for Ruth to be so brave and so bold enough to share her story with everybody shows the kinds of sacrifices you need to make when you want to pursue a career in the industry, but also shows the sacrifices you need to make when you have a really close bond with your family. Next up is the director, George Stevens. He's primarily known for tackling family dynamics, specifically in romantic relationships and family relationships, and most of these relationships pertain to youth culture. So as youth culture changes, we see his films develop around the adolescent challenges that go along with youth culture itself. And this primarily stands within social circles. So a lot of his films have to deal with fitting into a social construct and are oftentimes seen as going against social norms. He brings up a lot of intricate questions within his movies. He often makes the audience think about the decisions of the characters while still pertaining to family dynamics. And there are also a lot of questions that change as the culture of youth changes. Therefore, George was very good at changing with the times. And you see that within a lot of his films, because some of his films are centered around adult relationships and adult family dynamics, and some of his films are centered around more of an adolescent dynamic. And it shifts depending on the age range of the characters. Penny Serenade was released in 1941. This movie was written by Maury Reiskind with a story by Martha Stevens and was directed by George Stevens. This movie is about Roger Adams, who is played by Cary Grant, and Julie Gardner, who is played by Irene Dunn. They get married and have to navigate the ups and downs of their life together. The themes of this film are uncertainty, family, parenthood, and loss. 
The movie starts out with Julie about to leave her husband, and she plays different records while recounting the important moments of their life together. The themes of uncertainty are seen from the very beginning of their relationship. For example, when they're going on a date, the two finish dinner and open up their fortune cookies. Julie's fortune cookie says, you will get your wish, a baby. Roger's fortune cookie says, a wedding soon. Roger crumbles up his fortune and opens up another one that says, you'll always be a bachelor. So this scene in and of itself represents a foreshadowing of what is about to happen. And this scene gives off the impression of situations working out, but not in the way you would want them to. And Roger carries this level of uncertainty and doubt throughout the film. Roger is also the kind of character that comes across as incredibly ignorant regarding the types of compromises he has to make in a relationship. For example, when he gets assigned a newspaper post in Japan, he immediately asks Julie to marry him once he finds this out. And then they reunite in Japan three months later. Once they get to Japan, Julie realizes Roger's low income, which gives off another impression of Roger being irresponsible and impulsive with money. With that being said, as an audience, we see Roger and Julie learning how to be a couple on the fly. Julie ends up becoming pregnant while they're in Japan together, but she's only pregnant for a short time because she ends up losing the baby. I'm not going to spoil it and tell you how, but this incident creates a question of how do you cope with the prospect of becoming a parent and then having to cope with this great deal of loss while struggling to understand the wants and needs of your partner. After they lose the baby, Roger and Julie bounce the idea of adoption back and forth to their family friend Applejack, who is played by Edgar Buchanan. Applejack brings up adoption to Julie, and they both agree that that is what Julie wants, but she is unaware that Roger wants the same thing, because Roger had also brought up adoption to Applejack, but Roger and Julie never discussed it as a couple. This creates this indication that Roger and Julie have trouble communicating with each other, which brings up another question of how will their dynamic change once they become parents, and will they be able to put their differences aside for their child? An example of this is the scene where they are driving to the orphanage. Roger doesn't want Julie to quote-unquote get too excited, and says she's not going to quote pick the first one she sees, which shows that Roger is hesitant while Julie is in this full force. Julie is willing to really take the time out to understand what kind of child she wants and what kind of child the family needs, and Roger is more aloof to the whole process itself. We begin to see that Roger is still carrying a large sense of uncertainty and insecurity, and we see this shown as he is doubtful of his ability to be an effective parent, let alone an effective partner. Roger and Julie are both adamant about getting a specific child. They want a child who is two years old, has blonde curly hair, and blue eyes. This shows that they both want the stereotypical picture-perfect quote-unquote happy family, which in this case is another internal conflict of wanting everything out of their relationship that they are struggling to keep. When they are about to get their child, Roger lies about how much money he makes because he figures, what can a man do if he can't support his family? Miss Oliver, who is played by Balua Bondi, runs the orphanage, and she makes a comment about Roger's income, 
and insinuates that babies don't have to go to the wealthiest of families, but the parents have to be able to provide for the child. This brings up another important commentary about men being the quote-unquote breadwinners of the family. Ms. Oliver then sees their potential and offers them the first to see a baby girl. They end up taking the baby home and naming her Trina. And as they become parents and learn how to adjust to having a child in their life, we see their perspective shift, especially Roger's. We now see him in a position where he will do anything and everything for his child. This is evident where at one point Roger doesn't have enough money to provide for his family and they have to risk the idea of bringing Trina back to the orphanage. But Roger takes Trina to a judge and convinces him that he will get the money to provide for his family because Roger realizes that his family is what he needs to live for and what he wants to live for and he's never really had anything like that before. So I think for Roger, it's really about him being in a position where he finally has something to live for and to work for. And we see that transition of bachelorhood to husband to parenthood come into full force. Julie's role as a mother is more on the surface of self-doubt. When she's getting the home ready for when the baby first comes, we see a lot of hesitation there. We see a lot of second-guessing. Julie comes across as a very unsure, insecure person, and I think the idea of having a child in her life does seem a little bit trepidatious for her at first, but as soon as she holds her child in her arms for the first time, we see that love and that dedication in her eyes. And like Roger, in that moment, she will do everything and anything for her child. This film progresses in ways that you wouldn't really expect. I think with movies like this that start off in a very insecure, uncertain phase, the movie itself gives the audience more of an idea that things will get better, the story will progress, and we will somehow get this Hollywood happy ending. But the movie does not end that way. Trina ends up passing away at a very young age from a sudden illness, and we see Julie and Roger getting hit with this wave of grief and loss all over again. And we see that this time they are unable to come back from this tragedy. We see their relationship crumble because they are not willing to communicate and be open about how they each have felt following this big impactful moment in their life. They abandon each other rather than help each other through. But the ending of this film is a clear sign of hope because Miss Oliver calls and says that there is a baby boy that needs a home and a boy is what they originally wanted in the first place. So they decide to give their relationship another chance and having another child in their life for them is a sign of reaffirmation and a sign of hope that they are always meant to be in each other's lives and they were always meant to be parents in one way or another. So this movie is another great example of a full circle ending and the way that Stevens was able to pinpoint certain relationship dynamics and certain relationship struggles. I think this film is very realistic in that sense because of the struggles and the hardships that we see. Struggling with uncertainty and doubts in a relationship 
followed by loss isn't necessarily something that we think about as a society every single day. But when it comes up, it is known as a soul-crushing experience. And this film really does a great job at bringing those ideas and those concepts to life. Next is the movie Giant. This movie was written by Fred Gould and Ivan Moffat and was based on the book by Edna Ferber. And this movie was directed by George Stevens. Few quick disclaimers about this film. This movie in scope is by far the largest movie that George Stevens has ever directed, landscape, cast, story-wise, and this movie is three hours long. So there's a lot to take in, there's a lot of complexity and a lot of intricacies within the characters and the story, but also a lot of really great character dynamics and this movie brings up a lot of really interesting concepts and a lot of interesting questions, and there's a lot to analyze and a lot to dive into. So I've tried to pick apart certain themes and certain scenes that stand out the most, because although this movie is very long and it has a lot of ideas, they're very interesting and very intricate to dissect. This movie is about Jordan Benedict, who goes by the nickname Bick, who is played by Rock Hudson. He is a Texas cattle rancher who marries Leslie, who is played by Elizabeth Taylor, and they create a life together running the ranch and raising their family. The themes of this movie are power, inferiority complex, wealth, prosperity, image, and generational impact. The theme of power that we see in this film is mainly between Jordan Benedict and his wife, Leslie Benedict. Bick, as the nickname that Jordan goes by, makes it clear that he runs the ranch. So whenever there is a point where Leslie tries to speak up and voice her own opinion, Bick, as the quote-unquote big man of the house, immediately shuts her down and makes her feel unworthy of speaking her mind. There is a scene where Bick is with a group of his friends and they're all talking about working on the ranch. And Leslie goes over to give her own input and Bick goes on and belittles her in front of all of his friends, which creates the strong commentary on what a woman's place in the home looks like, because Leslie is expected to support Jordan in all of his endeavors and only be there as his sole support system, rather than taking the reins and speaking up for herself. When Leslie becomes pregnant, Bick hopes for a boy because he wants a man to carry on the family name and run the ranch. And then Bick goes on and implies that Leslie is there to quote-unquote produce a son to carry on the family name. That is the reason why they are in this position, that is the reason why they are together, is because Bick wants somebody to carry on his legacy and continue to run the ranch, which offers this implication that Leslie is there just as a sole support system like I had mentioned before. She's really only there to produce for the needs of Bick, and she really isn't allowed to be the center of attention or to really come into her own as the woman of the household. With that being said, as you might have guessed based on the time period of this film, Leslie's power is strictly seen through her maternal instincts. At one point, she goes into the Mexican village next to the ranch and helps a mother and her sick child in the village because they don't have enough resources to get the help that they need, and Leslie's the first one to jump in and offer some assistance to their needs. Once we actually see Leslie become a mother, we see that her focus is solely on her children. She actually takes the time out for them. 
while Bic is the complete opposite. We see his focus lean more towards the ranch and his powerful stance of what it means to run a business more or less on a ranch and making money off of what he does with his business. This causes Leslie's maternal instincts to increase. She actually ends up leaving Bic at one point and gives him the ultimatum of basically respecting me and our children or you lose me. And Bake eventually goes after her and convinces her to come home. But in the time that they spend away from each other, we see Bick learning how to be by himself without the support system of his family. And we realize that he really did have this codependent relationship with his family simply based on the fact that he wants his children to carry on the family name rather than actually missing them. Things don't really move along or progress as much on the ranch when Leslie is gone. And it shows that Leslie and Jordan rely on each other strictly for a business transaction sense of we are in this for the ranch, we are not really in this for the family. Whereas Leslie tries to make it a point to make it about her family, which is why she leaves. And I think that ultimatum makes Vic realize that he really does love his family and cherish his family, but not in the conventional fatherly maternal sense, more in the business of passing down a legacy sense. The biggest example of the generational impact that we see is the birthday party scene. Leslie and Bic's son, Jordan Benedict III, has just turned four. So there's a big birthday party with a bunch of kids running around and it's just a lot of fun on the ranch. There's a horse there that all of the kids are able to ride. And at one point, Jordan picks up his son and puts him on the horse and begins to ride him along while he's on the horse. And his son obviously doesn't want to be there. He's scared, he begins to cry, he's reaching for Leslie, he does not want to be on this horse. So as the responsible mother that Leslie is, she picks up Jordan and takes him off of the horse and tells the nanny to bring Jordan inside for a nap. But Bick impulsively goes back up to his son, picks him up, places him on the horse again, and rides with him at the front of the house while his son is crying. His son obviously doesn't want to be there. And Bick is so impulsive and so willing to do anything that he possibly can to make it a point to say, hey, I want my son to be the next owner of the ranch and to be the person to run the ranch that he can't really take no for an answer. And Bick realizes that his son is considered a disappointment in his eyes if he can't grow up to run the ranch. Another really important theme in this movie is the inferiority complex. According to the APA, the American Psychological Association, the inferiority complex is a basic feeling of inadequacy and insecurity deriving from actual or imagined physical or psychological deficiency. We see this complex between Bick's sister Luz and Leslie in particular. Luz, who is played by Mercedes McCambridge, runs the house. She takes care of all the other workers, she takes care of all the food, she is the main woman of the household. Once Leslie shows up, she begins to get to know the other people that work in the house and begin to take over some of the duties that Luz did before she came. 
which ends up making Luds feel very threatened by her presence because she feels that Leslie is taking over her quote-unquote responsibility to run the household, causing her to undermine Leslie's abilities to be an effective woman of the house. And as a sister, she becomes very protective over her brother Bick and makes a clear stance to Leslie saying that you need to know your place as the wife of the house, meaning the wife of the house is the main supporter of whatever Bix says goes. So it's very clear that Luz is on Bix's side. The themes of wealth and prosperity are seen in the characters of Bick and Jet Rank. Bick starts out as the quote-unquote big man on the ranch. He's the one that runs all of the operations, and that is his main domain. Everyone else is under him as he carries the superior title of the leader. Jet Rink, who is played by James Dean, is the ranch hand Bick, and he ends up getting a large inheritance after Luz dies. She falls from a horse after getting bucked off, and Jet uses the inheritance to create his own plot of land and convinces Bick to allow oil drilling on the ranch. The oil drilling inspires Jet to become rich. He harbors a lot of jealousy and resentment because of his social status compared to where Bick is. Jet wants to be the big man of the house and being under Bick creates a lot of tension. It creates a lot of stress between the two characters because of how powerful Bick sees himself and how powerful Jet sees himself. And that's where the competition begins to spark. He resents Bick for his social status, and Jet wants to become the next big man on the block. Once Jet gets all of this money from oil drilling, we see the positions shift between Bick and Jet. Jet is now the most powerful man on the block, while Bick doesn't have as much quote-unquote wealth as Jet. So there's this shift in the trajectory of a man's worth to provide for the people around them. This positional shift that we see between the characters creates a lot of prejudices and a lot of self-images that weren't really projected as much before. Bick's son, Jordan Benedict III, grows up and is played by Dennis Hopper. He ends up having a dream of becoming a doctor, which basically goes against Bick's wishes of Jordan running the ranch. Jordan ends up meeting a Mexican woman named Juana, who is played by Elsa Cardenas at his family's Christmas party. Which means that Bick has to confront his internalized prejudices in order to expect his son's relationship with his wife to be fulfilling and functional enough to be a part of the family. This comes into play when Juana becomes pregnant with Jordan's son. Their son is half white and half Hispanic, which means Bick has to be comfortable with the possibility of having an interracial child run the ranch one day. A few other additional scenes that represent the impact of power in this film are the dinner scene. Jet puts together this big dinner to celebrate the wealth that comes with the oil drilling, and Bick and Jet end up having this really huge fight over positional power. They both consider themselves to be the next big man on the block, and they are both confused as to who still owns the title of this. Is it Bick, who was the original powerful giant person that ran everything under the sun, or is it now Jet, 
who has gotten more money because of the oil drilling. The other prejudice scenes in the film revolve around Vic and Juana. Juana, at one point, is not able to go get her hair done at the salon because of her race. When Jordan finds this out, he is absolutely furious, and he goes to the salon and throws things and breaks a bunch of things. You can tell he absolutely will not and does not stand for this. And he ends up going back to the hotel room that night and confronting his dad about all of the internalized prejudices and racism and power that he just does not want to be a part of. It's very clear throughout the film that Jordan wants to take a different path in life and doesn't want to be in the center of the conversation of positional power the way that his dad is. Another important scene is the diner scene. There is a scene where Vic, Juana, the baby, and Leslie all go out to get something to eat at the diner. And the cook won't let the family eat because of Juana and her race and the fact that she has a child. And there's another Mexican family that walks in and they are told that they need to leave, that they can't eat there. And it's very obvious the straight out racism and prejudice issues that this cook has. And Bic ends up standing up for the Mexican family and his own family by fighting with the cook. It's another one of those examples of fighting for power and control, but we see Bic standing up for people in a way that he's never stood up for people before. At the beginning of the film, Bic is clearly in it for himself and for his legacy. But by the end of the film, we see the character development shift to a place where Bic is finally able to confront his own demons and his own flaws enough to be able to put his own pride aside and stand up for other people that don't really have the platform to stand up for themselves. The movie ends with Bic and Leslie getting older and they end up considering which grandchild will be the next man to run the ranch. So we see by the ending that they are looking into the eyes of the next generation of people who are going to run this huge family corporation that Bic has built. But we also see the tenderness and the sensitivity and the seriousness of how Bic was able to grow and learn with Leslie by his side. Moving on to some fun facts. For Gaslight, the first time Ingrid Bergman and Charles Boyer met was the day they shot the passionate kiss scene at the train station. Boyer was the same height as Bergman, so in order to appear taller, he had to stand on a box, which Bergman kept kicking as she ran into the scene. This movie marks Ingrid Bergman's second Oscar nomination and first Oscar win, and is the film debut of Angela Lansbury, who was actually 18 years old at the time that she made this film. Charles Boyer's wife was pregnant while filming. Boyer was often anxious about missing the birth, so he would rush in between takes to call her. His child was supposed to be born after filming finished, but arrived early. Production was halted that day, and the cast and crew opened up bottles of champagne to celebrate the birth. George Cooker suggested that Ingrid Bergman study the patients at a mental hospital to learn more about nervous breakdowns. Bergman focused on one woman in particular, whose habits and physical quirks became part of the character. Some fun facts for the actress. This movie was Anthony Perkins' film debut, and Debbie Reynolds was actually the first choice for MGM and George Cooper to play Ruth Gordon. 
Cougar wasn't pleased with Reynolds' unfamiliarity with Shakespeare and disliked her screen test, so Gene Simmons was cast instead. Fun facts for Penny Serenade. Cary Grant and Irene Dunn starred in two other films together, where they played husband and wife. 1937's The Awful Truth and 1940's My Favorite Wife. Irene Dunn said that this role was one of her favorites because this movie reminded her of her adopted daughter. And Cary Grant considered this role to be his best performance. Last but not least, some fun facts for Giant. Elizabeth Taylor and Rock Hudson became very close friends after making this film and stayed friends up until Rock Hudson's death. Elizabeth Taylor and James Dean also became close friends while filming and had many personal conversations offset, but on set he ignored her completely. George Stevens and James Dean did not get along while filming. Stevens wasn't a fan of Dean's unprofessional behavior, and Dean wasn't a fan of Stevens' directing style. They got into a big fight, causing Dean to go on strike for three days, holding up production and causing the movie to go over schedule. One night, James Dean and Mercedes McCambridge were so mad at George Stevens, they stayed up late and ate a jar of peanut butter, a box of crackers, six Milky Ways, and drank 12 Cokes. Last but not least, some movie recommendations of the week. First up is Gene Kelly and Natalie's Wood, Marjorie Morningstar. Now this film doesn't really have the best script, but I think it's a really decent example of actors doing the best with what they have. Sometimes you can tell when a movie isn't really that great simply because of how cringy the dialogue is or how awkward the character dynamics are, but if the actors involved are good enough actors to the point where they can work with whatever they are given, they are able to make the movie work. And I think this film is a perfect example of that. I think Gene Kelly and Natalie Wood have pretty solid chemistry considering a lot of the flaws in this film. Many of the problems with this film are surrounded by just awkward relationships, awkward character dynamics. Nothing's really set in stone or fitted like a puzzle piece as completely as I would have liked. But considering how talented Gene Kelly and Natalie Wood are, I think they pulled it off well with what they were given. I also rewatched Roman Holiday with Audrey Hepburn and Gregory Peck, of course. This movie is always a really, really fun, sweet film to watch. Of course, the ending sucks because they don't end up together, but seeing their chemistry unfold and seeing how well they work together always is such a joy to my heart. It's just one of those really feel-good, all-the-way-around classic films that never gets old. Last but not least is Jackie Gleason's Jigo. This movie was actually directed by Gene Kelly, and it was really, really fun and super sweet. Jackie Gleason plays a man who doesn't speak and lives in Paris, and he ends up taking care of this prostitute and her daughter, and the relationships between them are very heartfelt and very sensitive, and there's a warm, fatherly vibe to the whole entire film itself, and it's just a lot of fun, and being able to see Gene Kelly be strictly behind the camera directing a film that relies more on acting than dancing was also really fun to see. A lot of the movies that Gene Kelly has directed, he's collaborated with other choreographers because he's mainly known for working on musicals. And being able to see him direct a film that is strictly based on a story and the performances, it was a really great change of pace to see that.
As our time together comes to an end, I just want to thank everyone for tuning in to M's Drive-In. I'm your host, Emily, and be sure to check out next week's episode on Italian neorealism with Roberto Rossellini.